0: If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to continue on in the 1 Timothy series that we've been in. And just as a quick introduction before I read our passage, I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But we're only going to go through chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 today. Um, chapter three, verses one through seven is what's typically called the elder qualifications or the overseer qualifications. So we're going to take two weeks to go through those, but I wanted to read the whole seven verses so that we can get our bearings and then we'll come back and we'll walk through in detail the first three verses here. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. And if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up here on the screen as I read first Timothy chapter three, starting in verse one. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money." trap. This is God's word. As we get ready to go through it, it's, it's worth just taking a minute and and recognizing we're, we're in a passage and we're going to be in a passage actually for several weeks now where we're going to be talking about leadership and leadership is a topic, not just in the church, but, but broadly in our culture. And there's a church that I'm connected with that just over the course of the last six months, they ended up having to let their lead pastor go and, you know, sometimes there's, there's a pastor that leaves the church, and it's an okay situation. This was not a good situation. Um, he had only been lead pastor there for about two years, and uh, there was a lot of chaos that happened while the church was under his leadership. Uh, a lot of staff left, a lot of elders left, there was different conflicts that had cropped up, because over the course of those two years, there was a consistent pattern that he had of bullying and intimidation and dishonesty. And again, enough that in 2 years he was able to come in, create some chaos and then was was let go by the elders, which is a big deal. Letting a pastor know go is a big deal. So it was a big deal for them to take this step to remove him. And one of the questions in fact you might even be thinking this question right now, but one of the questions that the elders had to deal with in the aftermath of all of this is how in the world did this guy end up in this position? How did you guys miss this? When it that quickly comes out and when there's the chorus of staff people that are saying, you don't know what this guy's like. You don't know the intimidation. You don't know the dishonesty that's going on here. How in the world did this guy end up in this position? And before we become too judgmental on the elders that didn't catch this, got to recognize that one of the reasons this happened is the reason this happens all the time in different situations, and that's that most of us have a hard time seeing beneath the surface. This man obviously had some talents, skills, and abilities, looked the part, he seemed like the kind of leader that could get things done, and so major character issues were overlooked because of a shiny surface. And again, before we judge them too harshly, we can just all play, if you're a little bit older, you can remember back to what it was like when you were dating. Or if you're younger, you can think about dating and you can say, oh yeah, I remember what it was like when shiny surface things outweighed depth. This is sort of how we live for most of us, we make decisions. If, you're, if at your place of employment, you're involved with hiring, you know this temptation also. You know that sometimes there's people that come in and they just really wow you and they just look really good for the situation and it's hard to try to get beneath the surface and figure out what's really going on. We know that on a large scale, we do this with politicians all the time that the flashy, charismatic person gets our attention much more than the person who's a person of substance. It's hard to look beneath the surface. And in the world that we live in, for the most part, leaders get into the positions that they're in because people don't look beneath the surface. We have a lot of people in leadership all over our country, all over our world that are in those positions because they have flashy qualities, but poor character. And what we're going to see as we continue through the house rules of how we function in the church of Jesus Christ is that when it comes to leadership in this house, we value character. This entire passage is going to be about that dynamic. In fact, getting even a little bit more specific, what we're going to see in these verses is that the core qualification for Christian leadership is not charisma, but character, Hopefully, you are zeroing in as we read through those seven verses. And if you were, what you would see is with the exception of one thing, Paul does mention in these verses the idea of being able to teach. Apart from that one thing, every single qualification that Paul mentions in these verses is a qualification not about skill and talent, but about character. Say, when it comes to leadership in the Christian realm, the people that are going to that are gonna experience that office of leadership are gonna be people who are living the kinds of lives that are an example to God's people. And I need to give a quick warning here before going on. All right, some of you right now are like, oh, this is a passage about elders. I guess all the elders should listen (laughs) or anybody who wants to be an elder one day. And if that's not me, I think I get a free pass here. I can just kind of pray for other people to be convicted Or I can read some other passages of the Bible. I can pretend to do that on my phone while I check some other things. I get a free pass today. And what I wanna say, you guys are like, he knows we do that? Yeah, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Um, Here's what I wanna say. This passage is specifically geared towards talking about elders and overseers. We'll talk more about that. But I want us all to recognize at the beginning here, this passage in this sermon, this is for all of us. And here's why this is for all of us. You may never be an elder at this church or or at any church. You may never be in a position of kind of recognized leadership at this church or at a church. But we are all called to the things Paul talks about in this passage. In essence, what Paul is saying is the leaders need to be living the kind of Christian life that others can look at and say, I should live like that also. That is the calling for every single one of us. So whether you never end up in this position, if you're living out what Paul is talking about in these verses, you're gonna be in a position to shine the light of Jesus to a needy world and to help brothers and sisters in Christ grow more deeply in their relationship with Jesus Christ. This passage is specifically pointed towards leaders, but this passage is for all of us. And at the end of the time, I'm going to look to bring it to bear on all of us. But here's how this is going to unfold. As I said, we're we're going to go through verses one through three of these verses that I just read. And in these three verses, in each of the three verses, we're going to see a reason why character is so central to Christian leadership. And we'll look at the first one in verse one. In verse one, what we're going to see is that the reason that you need to have character if you're going to be a Christian leader is that it takes character to be willing to serve. So let's look at verse 1 again. Here is a trustworthy saying. So this is Paul saying, all right, pay attention. What I'm about to say is going to be worth it. You need to zero in on this. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, in a couple of minutes, we'll go big picture. But, but first, let's just zero into that word right in the middle, that word overseer. Let's figure out what's going on with that. Because some of you, if, if this is the main church that you've been a part of in your life, you might be looking at that and saying, well, overseer is not a position that we talk about in this church. Now, we have elders and we have pastors and we have small group leaders and, and life group leaders and exit 83 leaders. There's nobody here that we refer to as an overseer. We don't have overseer Dan and overseer Gary and overseer Phil. That, that's not the terminology we use. So what are we even talking about here when we're talking about qualifications of an overseer? And we get some insight into this and in the fact that here in first Timothy, Paul gives this list. And then in a the letter that he writes to Titus in chapter one of that letter, he gives almost the same exact list. He talks about almost all the same things as qualifications, not for an overseer in that passage, but for an Elder. In chapter 1, verse 6 of Titus, if you want to look it up now or if you want to look it up later, he says, here's what an elder must be like. He says that in verse 6. And then in verse 7, he continues on with the list saying, therefore, an overseer must be, and he fills in all the rest. In other words, if you're kind of tracking, you know what this means? Elder, overseer, they're the same thing. He's talking about the same position here. In fact, this is what happens in Acts chapter 20, if you wanna look this up later. Paul joins in in a conversation with the elders at Ephesus. He gathers specifically with the elders, and when he's with them, he refers to them as overseers. Elders are overseers. So when we're talking about overseers, we're talking about elders. So that might bring it to bear. All All right, I know what we're talking about now. But some of you might be saying, all right, well, that's elders, what about pastors? Well, here's the deal. There's only one passage in the New Testament that uses the word pastor to refer to a position that somebody would hold. The word pastor is usually used to describe not a position, but an activity, something that you're doing. Less the idea of this person is a pastor and more the idea of this person is pastoring. And by the way, some of you know this, you know what it means to pastor? Yeah, some of you just said it It means to shepherd. It's literally that same word. You're shepherding people. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is talking to the elders and calls them overseers, the command that he gives them is shepherd God's flock. This is an activity that goes on. So, so in some churches, churches do this differently. In some churches, if you're an elder, you're a pastor. If you're a pastor, you're an elder, an overseer. It's, it's all the same position. In our church, we do it a little bit differently where every elder at our church is a pastor in the sense that they are entrusted with shepherding. They're not primarily a board of directors kind of sitting above making decisions uh, behind closed doors. They're shepherding the people. But we also recognize we have other people who are shepherding God's people who aren't specifically on the elder board because shepherding is an activity. And so we have people that we call pastors even though they're not elders because they are shepherding God's people. So that's sort of the setup that we have. All right, and so what, what he's talking about here is he's saying, all right, I'm talking about overseers who are also elders, this is the same position, and the main thing that they're called to do is to shepherd God's people, to watch out for their souls, to give them care. But but now let's look at this big picture with that in mind. The big picture thing that Paul says here is basically if you wanna be an elder, if you wanna be an overseer, that's a good thing to want. And some of us might pause a little bit at that because all of us have had the experience of people who got into leadership because they were power hungry. You might say, wait a second, Paul, this is kind of dangerous. Just assuming that if they want to serve in this position, that it's because they're wanting something good, that, that, that doesn't seem like a safe assumption. Why is there not a bigger warning here? Why is there not something of, hey, if you really want to be an elder, maybe it's with bad motives. If you really want to be an elder, maybe you t- need to take a step back and not assume that you should be in charge. Why is it that instead, he says, if you want to be an elder, which is in a way saying if you want to be in charge, if you want to be in leadership of Jesus' church, you're wanting a good thing. Um, the short answer to why it's a good thing to want to do this is because being in the position of an elder is a sort of position that requires more of you than of what you actually get from it. And we all know there's times that you volunteer to be in charge, not because you're power hungry, but simply because you're willing to serve. I'll give you an example. This is happening right now in my life. I just went to a meeting last night about this. Um, For the third year in a row, I'm going to be my son David's soccer coach. (laughs) And so, yeah, some of you already know where this is going. So here's what happened. Two years ago, we signed up David for soccer. And when you sign up your kid for soccer and, and do that online, they also have a parent volunteer form. And so I was like, "All right, this is fine." You know, I I usually help out with the kids' sports, and so I filled out the volunteer form, and I very prominently marked that I was willing to serve in the position of assistant coach. (laughs) Um, Now, I'm not knocking assistant coach; I've done that for a lot of years. Most of the years that my son, uh, my oldest son, played baseball, I was an assistant coach. Now, it does take some work; it does take some sacrifice. But in the end, you're not the one scheduling things; you're not the one dealing with parents. You're not the one talking to the officials. And so I was like, oh, I'll be happy to let somebody else run this thing and be the assistant coach. In fact, my ideal wasn't even that. My ideal was that they were going to come back and say, we got a coach, we got an assistant coach, just go be dad. That's all I wanted to do. I want to sit there and be dad. Um, But I signed up to be an assistant coach. And then as the season got closer, I got an email. Most of you have been through this. They said, the season's not going to happen if we don't get more coaches. So I said, fine, I'll coach. Last year, signed David up for soccer. Filled out the parent volunteer form, and get, guess what I marked? Assistant coach. I just want to be able to enjoy the season. I'm not even trying to be an assistant coach. I'd rather be on the sidelines cheering for my kid. I'm willing to be an assistant coach if you need me. Once again, got the email. We need coaches. Once again, said, fine, I'll be a coach. This year, signed up David for soccer got out that parent volunteer form. And this time, I said, I'm going to mark head coach. (laughs) I want to be in charge. I want all the power that comes along with being a head coach. Make me a head coach. Now, you're all laughing because, you know, what power is involved with being a head coach for six and seven-year-olds? Now, there are some tyrannical coaches who are in it for the power. You know, that that does happen. But for the most part, that doesn't happen. They're begging for coaches because they know this is going to be a lot of work. You're going to have to do a lot of things, set up a lot of practices, deal with a lot of things. And there's not a payoff. We're not paying you for any of this. There's not a lot of accolades. You sign up typically to be a soccer coach for six and seven-year-olds, not because you're power hungry, but because you're willing to serve. And here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying. He's saying, if you want to be an elder, you know what that's going to mean? That's going to mean you're shepherding people. That's going to mean that you're with them in their grief and their sadness when they're at their lowest point. And those are uncomfortable, difficult situations. It means you're walking with people when they're dealing with the dysfunction and sin in their own lives and they're trying to get a hold of things in, the, in their own lives and in their own hearts and you're dealing with all of those things. It, it can be a dark, difficult path to walk. And then you're also dealing with people that have dysfunctions. That means that they turn the, their anger and they turn their dysfunctions towards you and they lash out at you sometimes because you symbolize something. Paul knows in all this, all right, if you're going to sign up to shepherd, by the way, in the first century, shepherding was not a job anybody wanted to get into, There weren't little boys being like, oh, if I really work hard and make the right connections and network well, I can be a shepherd. Paul's saying, if you wanna be a shepherd, you're wanting to do a good thing because you're willing to serve. And even with this whole idea, you might be looking at what Paul's saying and saying, all right, so people aspire to be an overseer or an elder. So, So does that mean that the way that somebody becomes an elder at this church is they basically bang down at the door and say, I'm ready, I'm ready to do it. And that's not how it happens um, ever since I've been here. Um, The way it normally happens is that the team of elders look at men in our church who are already shepherding, who are already living out this reality. We go and approach them, and and actually, typically, when we go and approach that person, you know what their typical response is? They're like, me? Like, really? Like, I, I haven't thought about myself in this way. But the elders who end up serving are men who say, you know what? I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to help. I have a heart to shepherd God's people. In fact, just this last year, I went through it, nine men at our church. We went through a book study where we studied a book about elders. Um, I told them, well, hey, this isn't you signing up to be elders. I just want to cultivate this. I want everyone in our church to be aspiring to live exemplary lives. I want men in our church to be aspiring to say, I wanna be the kind of man who could be an elder if called upon. And even when I invited these guys to be a part of this group, almost to the person, almost all nine of them said, I thought that I got this email by mistake. (laughs) These weren't men that looked at themselves and said, oh, you finally woke up and realized I should be in charge. (laughs) But it was such a powerful time because all nine of the men that I got to work with in this were all saying, I want to serve God's people. So whether I'm an elder in the future, whether I'm never an elder, whatever position I'm in, I want to be the kind of person that if I'm called upon, I'm ready to serve. And if I don't serve, it's not because I'm not qualified. And this is where it broadens out to all of us to say, all right, there's lots of positions of leadership at this church. Some of you are going to inhabit some of those for a period of time or for a long time. Some of you will never inhabit something like that that has a title to it. But every one of us should be aspiring to live the kind of life that reflects Jesus to others and that if called upon, the reason why we wouldn't serve in that position is not because we say my life's a mess, I'd be a poor example. It would be for some other reason. Paul says, you got to have character to be a leader in Jesus' church because to be a leader in Jesus' church means you're serving. That's number one. In verse two, we get the second, we find out you also need character to serve in Jesus' church because you need the character to pursue the kind of growth and new life that God calls us to. And so this is where he starts to formally get into the qualifications, the the list. And and by the way, on this, man, man, we could do an entire sermon on every single thing he lists here. So in some ways, this is gonna be a flyover. So he says in verse two, now the overseer is to be above reproach. Above reproach sometimes is translated blameless. Blameless. It has to do with the idea that accusations sort of fall off you, that you're sort of beyond accusation. And this is the point where every single one of us in this room is like, I'm out. I was willing to listen to see if I measured up to the list. Above reproach, I'm out. I I can't be an elder. I probably can't do anything at this church if the requirement is to be above reproach. Now, two things about above reproach. One one we'll talk about now, one we'll come back to. Um, First of all, above reproach does not mean perfect. There's a difference, and I'll talk about it in a few minutes, a difference between being perfect and being above reproach. Um, But the second thing is this. When he's talking about being above reproach, this is less of a separate qualification from all the rest and more of an umbrella for him to say, in all these areas that we're going to talk about, the kind of life that you're striving for is not not perfection. You're you're still going to have failures, but you're striving to live a life that's exemplary, that's a solid example to others. And so he goes through these qualifications. He first says, faithful to his wife which the literal Greek there is one woman man. Now just, the, this is a point where it's worth just to take a moment and, and some of you might already notice, when, when Dan is talking about elders, he keeps talking about men as elders and not women as elders. Um, and, and part of it, that's for several reasons. Um, first of all, we've, we've got right here, the first qualification that he mentions is a one woman man. So he is talking about men specifically in this role. And if you want to to have a conversation with me afterwards, I'm, I'm happy to do this. Last week, we talked a little bit at the end of chapter two, how within the church of Jesus, because God has created men and women different, we play out our masculinity and femininity differently in the church. And one of the ways that that plays itself out is in the role of elder, that's a role that the men practice. They got godly men who step forward and say, I'm willing to sacrifice, I'm willing to serve, I'm willing to go first, I'm willing to take the lead, that is reserved for men. And so he says he needs to be a one-woman man, which doesn't mean that he even has to be married, because you could say, well, you can't be a one-woman man if you're a single man. You, just, you don't have a woman in your life. And also, you can't be a one-woman man if you were married, and then your wife died, and then you got married again, because that's two women. You're not a one-woman man if you had two women. And, and things like that are getting into the weeds a little bit more than I think Paul intends. What he's saying here is that this is a man who has the character that he's faithful in his marriage, that he is not a womanizer, he's not a flirt, he's not sort of playing women off each other. If he is a married man, he is faithful to his wife, he's living a life that's exemplary in how he lives, a faithfulness to her. So that's where it starts. All right, he's a one-woman man, he's faithful to his wife, and then he moves into a bunch of other things. He's got to be above reproach when it comes to the whole idea of temperance, which kind of has to do with the idea of calmness of mind and and being reasonable. He has to be above reproach when it comes to self-control, and so he's not led aside by all of his whims and by how he's feeling in the moment. He needs to be above reproach in the area of being respectable, which has the idea of orderliness, that your life is orderly and not chaotic. He needs to be above reproach when it comes to hospitality, which, by the way, the, the literal Greek word for hospitality is love of strangers, Sometimes we think of hospitality and we're like, I'm hospitable. I have my best friends over all the time and we play games. (laughs) That's great. Have your friends over and play games. That's not quite what he's getting at here. What he's getting at here is this is the kind of man that gives to others that aren't going to be able to give back to him. And finally, the last thing that he mentions is the only thing that has anything to do with skill, that he says he must be able to teach. Now, I already mentioned Titus 1, that that Titus 1 verses 5 through 9, that's the parallel passage to this, where Paul goes through almost all the same things. In Titus 1, 9, instead of saying able to teach, I want to read you what Paul says there about this qualification. He says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. What he's saying is not, this guy needs to be able to get in front of a crowd of a thousand people and have them hang on his every word. Otherwise, no go. What he's saying is, it's got to be somebody who knows the gospel, who knows the gospel deeply. Doesn't necessarily need to be able to talk about every in and out, about every minutia of the doctrine, but he needs to know the gospel inside and out And he needs to be able to encourage God's people to live in light of that. And he needs to be able to refute those who are opposing it. That doesn't even necessarily mean that that's a person who's getting up front all the time. That could be somebody who's leading a small group. That could be somebody that just in interpersonal conversations is really able to convey the gospel. And so that's why even here where I'm like, all right, this is one that is kind of built on skill, not on character. I'll still say this. From this definition, I want every person who is a part of our church family to be able to teach. I want us to be able to teach our children, our nieces and nephews, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our coworkers. I want us to be able to remind ourselves what the gospel is, that God has chosen to save sinners through Jesus Christ, that we are in the family of God, not because we did something that God required of us, but that Jesus did something that paid the price that we otherwise would have needed to pay. That through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we are in the family of God. I want everybody in our church to know that and to own that and to live by that and to be able to teach that to other people in their lives. And he's saying, especially the overseers, they've got to be able to do that to shepherd God's people. Now, now let me come back to though, because I I said this at the beginning, there's a difference between being perfect and being above reproach. So you could look at these and be like, this is just silly. Why even go on? We're all out. So here's the difference between being perfect and being above reproach. I'll, I'll give an illustration. I promise it is hypothetical. I'm even going to use hypothetical names. We'll, we'll use the names Matthew and Mark just to be biblical here. So, so in this scenario, all right, imaginary scenario, Matthew is one of the elders at our church. Mark is a church member. Mark comes up to me and he says, you know, I went up to Matthew, that, that elder Matthew, um, and I asked him a question and he totally blew me off. He was really rude to me. It, it, it really threw me off base. And if my response is Matthew did that, that doesn't sound like Matthew. That really surprises me. Let me go talk to Matthew. And then I go talk to Matthew and I say, you know, Mark came and talked to me. And he said that when he went and talked to you, that you really blew him off and were rude to him. And Matthew says, my gosh, I was. I feel awful about this. I had had the worst day, but you know, there's no excuse. I shouldn't have treated him in that way. I just kind of snapped at him. I feel awful about it. And then Matthew goes back to Mark, and Matthew says, Mark, I'm I'm so sorry. That was not about you. I I had a hard day, but it's no excuse. I never should have treated you in that way. That's not the guy I want to be. I'm really sorry. I really hope that you can forgive me. And I really, can can we just have a do-over, and can we have that conversation that you were wanting to have? Because I really want to have that with you. Is Matthew above reproach? Man, I'm going with yes. Matthew can shepherd my soul. That's a guy that can shepherd my soul. That's a guy I'm willing to follow anywhere. Somebody that says, yeah, I have sin. Yeah, I still mess up. But when I do, I own it and I look to rectify it and I'm fighting the sin in my life. Now, if that pattern kept happening every other week, that'd be a problem. But if that's something that happens, we can look at that and say, yeah, yeah, that's somebody owning their stuff. That's somebody living the way that we would want every church member to live. Now, on the other hand, if Mark came up to me and he said, I talked to Matthew, one of our elders, and he totally blew me off and was really rude to me. And my response is, all right, that's just how Matthew is. (laughs) We all have to deal with it. (laughs) We all have been on the wrong side of it. We've kind of figured out what things you need to tiptoe around. But you know, I I mean, if if you're going to deal with Matthew, that's just what you're going to get. That's just how Matthew is. Can Matthew be an elder? No, No, Matthew can't be an elder. You can't be an elder when you're behaving. And that's not above reproach. That's not an example to the flock. And by the way, this is another point where I want to broaden this out to all of us. If there is an area of your life where you find that your consistent refrain is, that's just who I am. I want to invite you to think deeply about that. We're in a culture that sort of is self-obsessed right now. Got all kinds of personality tests. He's got all kinds of things that are self referential. That's just who I am. So if you're going through life and you're like, yeah, I'm sorry that I was kind of crude with what I said, that's just who I am. Yeah, I know I was kind of blunt when you came up to me, but that, that's what you're going to get if you come to me. That's just who I am. You know what? If you come hard to me, I'm going to come right back at you because that's just who I am. You know who you are? You're somebody who needs to repent. God does love you, even in your sin and dysfunction. But God is not calling you to revel in that. If you find yourself consistently saying, that's just who I am, God is calling you to something much greater than that. He's calling you to growth. He's calling you to pursue new life in him. Paul is not saying you got to be perfect, but he is saying you've got to be above reproach and pursuing the kind of growth that reflects that. That's not true. You've got to have character if you're going to serve. You've got to have character if you're going to pursue. And then in verse 3, finally, he says, you've got to have character if you're going to fight. And specifically, if you're going to fight against the sin and dysfunction that still has sway in each one of us. So in verse 2, he gave all these positive qualities. He says, you should be temperate and self-control and hospitable. Now, if you look in verse 3, he gives four knots four negative things, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He says the kind of person that's going to serve in this role is going to be the kind of person who is not overcome by sin and dysfunction that makes him unable to be an example to other people in the church. And again, all four of these could be just a, an entire sermon. You get to the first one, not given to drunkenness. And, and he doesn't here mean never drinks. In fact, we're, we'll, it'll be a little while until we get to this. But you know, in chapter five of 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to drink. He says, stop drinking only water, drink a little bit of wine for your frequent ailments. Some of you are like, what date is that sermon on? I'm going to make sure I need to figure out what's going on with that. The authors of Scripture never say, don't ever drink alcohol. That's not a standard that we hold for the leaders at this church. Some of you know this. I I drink alcohol. Um, I've never had more than two drinks because after one, I'm ready to take a long nap. (laughs) Um, And also, I just think it wouldn't be a good idea. Some people have pushed back on this. I'm like, I'm I'm not saying this is right in the Bible. I don't understand why anybody ever needs more than two drinks. If you need more than two drinks, I just suggest you think about your life. You, You think about what you're doing with alcohol. Um, he isn't saying you can't drink. What he's saying is you need to be in charge of alcohol and not have alcohol in charge of you. If you're going out and getting drunk, you can't be an example to the flock. If you are, as the Greek word actually means, if you are preoccupied with wine, you can't be an example to the flock if you're doing that. In fact, a, a lot of commentators think these first two knots go together. The idea of not being given to drunkenness and not being violent but instead being gentle that it was a reality in the first century and it's a reality now that when we get drunk, we behave badly. And when we get drunk, sometimes we get into violent disputes, whether physically or verbally in this case. And this is just another word, just to come back to this. That he's saying, yeah, yeah, you can't be a shepherd of God's people if you're violently getting into fights with God's people. You just can't do that. Here's the last word I wanna say about alcohol. Because again, I've said, all right, it's not something that's not allowed. You're allowed to do it. You don't have to abstain. Um, But here's my just pastoral advice to, to all of you. If you drink and there is even one person in your life, even one who thinks you have a drinking problem, assume that you do. Assume that it took them courage to tell you that. Assume that they're looking out for your best interests. Don't brush them off. Don't ignore them. Don't think they don't really know what's going on. Assume that they're right And that you need to take action. Take this seriously. Not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, which doesn't mean you're never in a conflict. Paul was frequently in conflicts, but quarrelsome people aren't people that just find themselves in conflicts. Quarrelsome people are people who pick fights without it being constructive at all. Just as a quick note, think about this for your life. Think about this in particular for social media. Before you hit post, ask yourself, is any person reading this going to have anything constructive happen in their life because of what I'm about to say or am I just getting something off my chest? Not quarrelsome. And finally, not a lover of money because Jesus said he can't serve God and serve money. And so if you're serving money, you're not going to serve God's people well. You're going to follow the money wherever it takes you. You're going to say things that aren't true because that's going to bring more money and more attention your way. You can't be a lover of money. We all have money. We all deal with money. We need to be in charge of our money instead of our money being in charge of us. Paul says, yeah, if you're going to be a shepherd of God's people, if if you're going to be an example, if you're going to be an elder in Jesus' church… You need to be living the kind of life that's not perfect but where you are pursuing the kind of growth that models good character and when you're in the fight against the sin that would threaten you live in as an example to the flock. Now, I said at the beginning and, and I absolutely believe this, that this message is for all of us. This message is, I'll say a word to leaders and, and to potential leaders but, but I want to bring it back to all of us. And I already kind of mentioned this, but man, my desire, when it comes to the whole position of elders, um, the, there's a lot of men who, who aren't gonna serve in that position just because not everybody is called to it, not everybody should serve in it. It's not gonna be a position for everyone. But let, let me tell you my heart for the men in this church. My heart is that if you're a man who's part of this church family, that means that you are pursuing godliness. And that means whether or not you're ever called upon to be an elder at this church, the only reason that you're not gonna be serving in that role is not because you're unqualified. That you're the kind of person that when you get that, when you get that email from ASO, it's like, we're short, we need people. We need somebody to step into the gap. We're in kind of a weird place in our church and we need people to serve in this role. That your response wouldn't be, I can't serve in that. My life doesn't look anything like those elders. That you would say, maybe it's not the thing I'm supposed to do for the next 10 years, but I'm willing to step in and serve. I'm pursuing to be the kind of man that could be used in that way. That's the calling for all of us as men at this church. And the calling for all of us as as men, women, wherever we are at this church, the calling for all of us is to live lives that point people towards Jesus, Jesus that live lives where we are shepherding, at the very least, our children and our neighbors and our friends and the people in our life group that we're shepherding people towards Jesus and towards the life that he has to give. And so what I want to do, in a minute, I'm going to ask three questions that will kind of lead us into a time of reflection. Because after these three questions, we're going to have a time where the band is going to come back out and lead us in a song. We'll get to respond to God in our hearts And in doing that, we're also going to have pastors and elders and leaders from from the the different prayer ministries here up on either side of the stage, ready to receive anybody who wants to come forward and say, I just need somebody to pray with me. And so I'm going to invite some reasons. When I ask these three questions, these might lead you into saying, I need somebody to pray with me. But first, let me say one other thing about this response time. We believe every week the Holy Spirit is at this church bringing people to new life in Jesus. So for you, you might say, all right, before I even get into this leadership thing and, and, and all these questions, I need that new life in Jesus. I need to give my heart to Jesus. I need to experience the forgiveness and new life and adoption into God's family that comes with all of this. So for some of you, your calling to come forward is not gonna to be to get prayer in a specific area that I'm gonna talk about, but simply to come forward and say, it's time for me to give my life to Jesus and experience life in the family of God. But let me now ask these three questions that I'll ask you to consider. The first is this. Is there some area where you know God has called you to step forward and serve, but you've just been unwilling to do it? It's gonna be too inconvenient. It's gonna be too costly or you're nervous or intimidated. You know God's calling you to do it, but you haven't been willing to step forward. And if that's you, I want to invite you to respond. I want to invite you to respond to the Holy Spirit leading you. And I want to invite you also to specifically respond. Come up and pray with one of the people who are going to be up here. Pray with them that God will give you the power to follow through on what you need to do. Are you being called to serve and you're not doing anything about it? Second question is this. Is there some area where you have just been complacent and not pursuing growth? And it's clear God's looking to grow you. Maybe when it comes to hospitality, that you're just like, gosh, I just keep to my own. I know God is calling me to something more, but, I, but I'm comfortable where I am. I'm not sure I want to do it. Or God is calling you to a greater level of self-control. Or God is calling you to a greater level of faithfulness in your marriage and, and in what you're looking at and what you're thinking about. Is there some area where it's time to say, I need to pursue and I've been complacent? And if so, I want to invite you to Respond. And a good way to respond is to come and to pray with a brother and sister that'll join you in that. And here's a third question. Is there some area of sin in your life that you've just kind of come to decide, that's just who I am? That's just the way I am. I'm willing to put up with it. It's not perfect. It's not ideal. But I'm not really in the fight. That's just who I am. My invitation to you is to respond God has greater things for you than to stay a slave. The Holy Spirit who lives in you is the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So the invitation to you is to respond and a great way to respond is to come and to pray with a brother and sister and say, I need victory over this area. I just need to fess up to somebody and I need to pray for God's new help and empowering in my life. And for all of us, our call is to respond in worship and devotion to the God who's called us to this. So let me pray for us now as we get ready for this time of response. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you've given us in Jesus. Thank you for the new life that you've promised us. We love you and we devote ourselves to you. And Father, I pray now during this time that you receive worship from our hearts. I pray that you receive joy as we focus our attention on you and I pray that you bring new healing and new life as we respond to you in our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen.